Good morning, everybody. It's good to see my church family here this morning. You know, I put all these books up here this morning, and Patty comes by and she said, "Boy, it's going to be a long sermon." <laughs> well, I don't. When when I uh, use illustrations and passages from books, I actually put them in my notes. I'm not like Jim Grinnell, who does bring you know five, six books up here sometimes and then finds it. But I always so. And actually, these are books but they're a special kind of book. They're all Bibles. These are all my Bibles. These are the, all the Bibles that I have at church and at home. And uh, I actually have 30 of them. And I know at least two that I don't have here. I've got, I've got this one that is uh, the one that I use mostly in house church. It's an ESV study Bible. I've got uh, this one, which is a NIV study Bible that I've used for years. I've got the uh, St. Joseph New Catholic Edition. I've got the Parallel Four Translation New Testament. I've got this one that Jim Garrett gave me when he was cleaning out his bookshelf. And, and uh, the inscription says, October 5th, 1980, with love, Aunt Biddy. And this is, uh, this is a New American Standard Bible I keep in my office. I've got, I've got all kinds of Bibles. I've got some of the leftover Bibles from when my kids were at home, the Wonder Bible. Any of you guys have that for your kids, the Wonder Bible? None of you? Really? It's kind of a cool little Bible. Okay, there you go, Carla. Uh, the New English Bible. And then I've got a, a couple that are pretty special to me, too. Uh, m- many of you remember Willard Hudson. He was one of the original elders of TCF. And when Willard passed away 20 years ago, this year is when Willard passed away, uh, Nettie gave me several of his books. And one of them is this Harper Study Bible. It's got Willard's name in it. It's got some notes. And it's very special to me. So anyway, I've got all kinds of Bibles here, folks. I've got a couple other ones from Willard. This is my primary study Bible that I use at home. Uh, usually leave it at home since I have several at church. So my guess is that many of you are a lot like me. How many of you, if you were to count up all your Bibles, do you think you'd have 25, 30 Bibles? Really? Really? Okay. I, th- I think a lot of us do. You have this many Bibles, you have many, maybe more in various parts of your home or your office or your car, and that doesn't even count the Bibles you have on your smartphones now, right? Most of us have Bibles on our smartphones, and many of us have more than one, don't we? Now, if having this many Bibles is an indication of our devotion to Scripture, then we must really be a people of the Word, huh? A very spiritual bunch I'm looking at here this morning. The Bible must be very important to us. Now, TCF really is, in one sense, a word church, in the sense that the Word of God takes a very central role in all we do here at TCF. There was even a time here at TCF that some people wanted us to spend more, even almost all of our time in the morning service with just praise and singing and lessen the importance and the time we spend in the Word of God preaching it. But the elders took a firm stand at that point. That was before I was an elder. But the elders took a pretty firm stand and they affirmed the importance of the preaching of God's Word as a major element and focal point of our Sunday service. However, what I thought of when I collected all these various Bibles is how incredibly blessed we are and how spoiled we are. You know, we have the Word of God in abundance And there are places in the world where believers don't have even one Bible, 
let alone this many. Think of it. They don't have the choices in the different translations that we have. They don't have the choices in study Bibles or specialty Bibles or kids' Bibles or red-letter Bibles or chain reference Bibles or recovery Bibles or men's Bibles or women's Bibles or almost any other kind of specialty Bible you can think of. Where we have an abundance, we have many choices, they often have nothing. Yet their love and appreciation for the Word of God is such that they will sometimes literally risk their lives for just a glimpse, a taste of what we call the Word of God. We see this in the church around the world now. And we've seen it throughout church history. There's a story in the year A.D. 303 when the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued a decree which he hoped would extinguish the spreading flames of Christianity in that time. One of his primary objectives was the seizure and destruction of Christian scriptures. And we see this today, don't we? And isn't it interesting that even pagans recognize the importance, the power of the Word of God, so they want to get rid of it. Now, later that year, officials enforced the decree in North Africa, and one of the targets was a man named Felix. He was the bishop of Tibuca, which was a village near Carthage. The mayor of the town ordered Felix to hand over his scriptures. Now, there were some judges in the town who were willing to accept just scraps of parchment. They didn't have to hand over all of them to save his life, but Felix refused. He refused to surrender the word of God at the insistence of what he called mere men. Resolutely, he resisted compromise, and Roman authorities finally shipped Felix to Italy where he paid for his stubbornness with his life. On August 30th, A.D. 303, as the record puts it, with pious obstinacy, he laid down his life rather than surrender the Gospels. There are stories throughout history of how people have had such a love for and appreciation of the Word of God and its power in their lives. Even here in America, where we have an abundance of Scripture, there's a story of a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion And there's an evangelist named Robert Sumner who tells about him in his book, The Wonder of the Word of God. Now, the victim's face was badly disfigured and he lost his eyesight as well as both hands. He was just a new Christian and one of his greatest disappointments when he lost his eyesight and his hands was that he could no longer read the Bible. Then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips and hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille, but much to his dismay, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had also been destroyed in the explosion. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch the Braille. And he could feel them, and he immediately thought, I can read the Bible with my tongue. And when Sumner, the evangelist, wrote this book, the man had read through the Bible four times. He had read through the entire Bible four times. This is the kind of love for the Word of God that's illustrated in our primary text for today. Our primary text is in Psalm 119. If you have your Bibles, and you should, but if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to there now. Psalm 119 is both a hymn of praise to God for His Word and a prayer expressing our continuous need of His care and how the Word fits into God's care for His people. Now some of us, when we were younger, I can say that about myself, wrote love poems to our spouses at some time in our relationship. 
I wrote Barb a couple songs, actually. I don't know if she can remember them, but I remember them. Well, this psalm is actually a love poem. It really is. It's a love poem. But it's not about marriage. It's about the Word of God. It illustrates a spirit of devotion to God's Word, as well as a celebration of the closest of relationships that we creatures have as servants with our great God. The whole psalm, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, is addressed to God in praise of His Word. It's too long to read the whole thing this morning, although I would encourage you, because this is actually a two-part message, I would encourage you to read it over the next couple of weeks. Read the whole Psalm 119. But this message, sweeter than honey, better than money, is a two-parter, so we'll only get halfway through our thoughts this morning. We read in verse 103 of Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then in verse 72, we read, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then we read in verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. There's those thoughts. Sweeter than honey, better than money. And actually, in Psalm 19, not Psalm 119, but in Psalm 19, both of these thoughts are together in one verse. We read in Chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So reading the entirety of Psalm 119 may help you grasp some of the things we're looking at this morning and then again in two weeks when we conclude this two-part message. But for starters this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first several verses of Psalm 119. We're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 16. So hang with me or read along with me in your Bibles as I read this Psalm 119 verses 1 through 16. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the Bible Bowl theme verse, isn't it, folks? Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. One of the first things we notice is how God's word is referred to in this psalm. We see word, but we see a lot of other words used. Depending on which translation you're reading, there are 8 to 11 different words that are used to refer to Scripture in this passage. These are virtually synonymous terms used in celebrating God's revelation. We see words like law or laws, 
That is God's divinely revealed teaching. We see statutes, we see precepts, we see commands, we see decrees, we see word or words, we see way or ways, we see testimonies, we see judgments, we see righteousness, we see truth or faithfulness. We see all these things as words used to describe the Word of God. So it may not be really important to look too closely for distinctive meanings, yet the variety of terms, I believe, does suggest the many different ways we can think of God's Word. And these words also point to how incredibly rich the revelation of God Himself to us is in His Word, His Word to us. Law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, word. This language appears in almost every verse and often more than once in the same verse. The terms have different shades of meaning. For example, what God wants or what God appoints or what God demands or what He has spoken. But they all center on the same big idea, God's revelation in words. Surely it is significant that this intricate, finely crafted, single-minded love poem, the longest in the Bible, is not about marriage or children or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or rivers or oceans, but about the Bible itself. There's a thread which runs right through this poem's rich tapestry in every verse, and it's an appreciation of the value of God's revelation, God's Word, His Word to us. The word is described as, among many other things, we see the word described as sweeter than honey. We see it described as better than money, as delight, as evoking praise, as evoking even love. The psalmist rejoices that the word has sustained him in the past. The psalmist rejoices that this word has been a source of hope. It's been a source of comfort. It's been a source of practical wisdom. It's been a source of a satisfying life. The Word is the basis of hope for the future. The psalm mentions love for the Word 12 times, three times just in the 16 verses that we read this morning. Now, think about that. Love for the Word of God. That can be very convicting to me. Do I really love God's Word? Does how I spend my time reflect that love of His Word. Psalm 119 highlights God's communication of truth about doctrine and ethics. We read in Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The law and the other words used for Scripture here comprehensively embrace all that God has made known of His character, all that he's made known of his purpose and what he would have all of us to be and to do. The word of God is pictured in this psalm is pretty all-encompassing. But of course, the psalm isn't the only place where the word of God speaks of itself with clarity about its purpose and its power. For example, we read even in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, you have in the Word all you need for all of these things. 
It's also interesting that though we sometimes consider the reading of or the study of the Word of God to be a chore, just one more list, thing on our list of things to do, the word here as viewed by the psalmist is not a burden at all, but it's a lifeline to God and a demonstration of His grace, a demonstration of His guidance in our lives. Matthew Henry notes that the scope and design of the psalm is to magnify the law and make it honorable, set for the excellency and usefulness of divine revelation and to recommend it to us for the government of ourselves. And then he also points out that great esteem and affection that the psalmist had for the word of God is the more admirable considering how little he had of it. Perhaps no more than the first books of Moses in comparison with what we have, which may shame us who enjoy the full disclosures of divine revelation and yet are sometimes so cold toward it. The writer of this psalm probably had no more than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books most scholars believe were written or compiled by Moses. And we have so much more of God's Word. So much more revealed about God and His character, His nature, His truth, His plan for our salvation in our 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. We have all that the psalmist had and wrote this love poem about. We have all that plus much more. And what's more, we also have experienced Jesus who is described as the living Word. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, at least sometimes, treat the Word rather casually. We call it the Word of God, which is really a pretty awesome thing if you think about it. Yet we often don't give it a primary place in our lives. It's the Word of God, yet we often are ignorant of what it says. And this is a dangerous place to be, ignorant of what the Word of God says. Because as Scripture notes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So this very strong, this very direct passage of Scripture begs the questions. How can we obey his commands if we don't know them? If we don't understand them? How can we live in him? How can we walk or live as Jesus did if we ignore or forget his word? Back to Psalm 119, again, verse 16, the last verse that we read this morning says, I will not forget, the NIV says, neglect your word. The idea here is to be oblivious from, from want of memory or attention, to cause to forget. Yet experience shows that's what many of us do. We forget it, or we neglect it, or both. The word is, as this psalmist writes, sweeter than honey and better than money. Not too many of us neglect our money, do we? But you know what? We treat it like Brussels sprouts or broccoli or some other healthy vegetable. We know it's good for us, but it's neglected. Maybe because we don't like how it tastes sometimes, or we like the taste of something else like ice cream better. Here's a list of kids' answers to Bible questions. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. The fifth commandment is humor thy father and mother. 
Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire at night. A Republican is a sinner mentioned in the Bible. There's a political joke for you Democrats out there. The natives of Macedonia did not believe, so Paul got stoned. Hello, you guys out there? The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. Now, that's kids, right? So we tend to think, well, kids get confused. They hear this and they hear that. But adults often don't have a significantly better grasp of Scripture. Among Christians in one survey, 61% knew that Jonah is a book of the Bible. 27% said it isn't. And 12% had no idea. 75% of Christians surveyed knew that the book of Isaiah is located in the Old Testament, while 11% thought it's in the New Testament, and 13% don't know where Isaiah could be found. Seven of ten Christians knew where Christ was born. Just seven of ten? I mean, that's so basic, right? 16% named Jerusalem as Jesus' birthplace. 8% said it was Nazareth. And 6% didn't even try to guess. The question that gave the most people trouble was, is the expression, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible. Only 38% of Christians correctly stated that this phrase cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. 42% thought this was a biblical quotation and 20% had no idea. Now, that's not just an ignorance of what the Bible says in words. That's an ignorance of the Gospel. Because God help us if that statement was true, that God helps those who help themselves. Because what have we learned? about the gospel we were dead dead people can't help themselves the survey authors also noted uh, they asked the question why is there so much ignorance about about the bible well most likely it comes from a lack of bible readership because half of all americans do not read the bible at all the majority of born-again christians read the bible once or twice a week or not at all the survey found that 18 percent of all christians say they read the word every day Another 18% read the Bible between three and six days a week. 37% read it once or twice a week. And 23% said they don't read the Bible at all. Now, that's 23% of born-again Christians. That's one out of every four of us in this room don't read the Bible at all. And, of course, among non-Christians, 70% do not read the Bible. Actually, I'm surprised that that number is not higher. That says 30% of non-Christians read the Bible. Very interesting statistic. We won't survey this congregation today, so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand where you fit into the statistics, but you know. So why is the Word so important? Why do we miss so much when we don't read the Word, when we don't know Scripture? The psalm that we just read, all of Psalm 119 actually, begins to answer these questions as well. For starters, let's think. If we want to be solid followers of God, if we want to, as verse 1 of Psalm 119 says, to be among those whose ways are blameless. If we want to be blessed, what will we do? We will walk according to the laws of the Lord. And as verse 2 notes, we will keep his statutes and we will seek him with all of our heart. Verse 3 says that those who walk according to the law of the Lord and keep his statutes do nothing wrong. How about that? So the very difference between what's right and wrong is found in the word of God. Isn't it good we don't have to guess? We don't have to wonder how to figure out the difference? A knowledge of Scripture reveals these things to us. 
Another thing to notice is that the psalmist clearly has a very strong desire to live up to these standards that he reads, to be this kind of person, one who is blameless, one who is keeping his statutes, doing nothing wrong. He notes this desire throughout this psalm. And he notes it in words of prayer in the midst of this great extolling he is doing of God's word. In verse 9, for example, the psalmist asks a key question. How can a young man keep his way pure? The King James of that says, how can a young man cleanse his way? The message paraphrase says, live a clean life. The New English Bible says, steer an honest course. And I don't think this uh, applies clearly. This doesn't just apply to young men. This is for all of us. Regardless, the answer is clear. By living according to your word. By living according to your word. Many of you know Clay Starrett. He's a brother at one of the churches that attends the conclave. He's preached in this pulpit and written some good books. And he says in one of those books that a love for the truth is crucial in keeping us on the right, straight way. A love for the truth is not an option for believers. It is an absolute necessity I have known several Christians who have fallen from the faith because they took a haphazard attitude toward the Word of God. Derek Prince wrote this, Your attitude toward God's Word is your attitude toward God Himself. You do not love God more than you love His Word. You do not obey God more than you obey His Word. Another key reason the Word is important is that it protects us. It protects us. Think of that. It protects us spiritually and emotionally. We read in Psalm 119, verses 92 and 93, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. We read also that the Word keeps us in the faith. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And that's why we need the full armor of God described there and that equipping God provides. That's why it's called the armor of God. The equipping includes the sword of the Spirit, folks, which is the Word of God. When Jesus was resisting the devil's temptation in the uh, the desert, he fended off the devil's attacks. What did he use to fend off the devil's attack? He quoted scripture. He used the sword of the Spirit of God. There's a power in the Word that sometimes we don't see or we tend to forget. And sometimes we don't even realize it's there. But God's revelation of Himself and His Word shows us that the Word has power to accomplish His purposes. The classic passage revealing this truth is in Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 10 and 11, you know this passage. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In many ways, if you think about it, the Word protects us from ourselves, too. We do need protecting from ourselves sometime and our worst inclinations from relying on our feelings, relying on our own emotions and our perceptions of ourselves and our perception of the world around us. 
Has anybody noticed that we're all pretty good at deceiving ourselves? Anybody ever notice that? We think we're good. We think we're okay. We think we can rationalize pretty much any behavior that we want to. But the Word's power can cut through all that, can break through all that. The Word can break through hardness of heart and deception like nothing else. As it says in Jeremiah chapter 23, 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Those are strong things. Fire, a hammer. Hebrews 4.12 is also a key verse here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Funny story, last week after I did the prayer in last Sunday morning service, Laura Grinnell comes up to me and she says, Bill, you need to enunciate better. And I said, what? What are you talking about? Well, as part of my prayer, I quoted this passage from Hebrews. And one of Laura's granddaughters asked her after the prayer, how can a two-inch sword work? Two inches is not very long. (laughs) Two-edged, not two-inch. So I'm I'm enunciating, two-edged. Or maybe I should even enunciate that out further, say two-edged, (laughs) two-edged. Now obviously we have to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when God uses that sharp, double-edged, or two-edged sword. But God's Word, by the power of His Holy Spirit, does the convicting, does the judging, and as 2 Timothy 3.16, which we read a moment ago, does the correcting and training in righteousness. And in fact, that's where the problem sometimes comes in. There may be some of this at work. We don't read the Word because we don't like what we see. Not so much in the Word, but in us. It reveals too much. Maybe it convicts a little bit too much. Maybe it exposes something real about us. It exposes a reality that we don't want to see, we don't want to deal with. It shows us too much of what we're really like. Now, isn't it a good thing that the Word doesn't just leave us there? It doesn't just leave us with conviction. It doesn't just leave us with exposing our self-deception. It shows what we can become through God's grace in Christ. But sometimes we don't get far enough to see that because it's hard for us to see what we really are. Someone once said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Charles Colson told this story in his book, The Body. At the height of her fame as the other woman in the Ivana and Donald Trump breakup, this was some 25 years ago, Marla Maples was the name of the other woman, and she spoke of her religious roots. She said she believed in the Bible, but then she added the disclaimer, but you can't always take it literally and be happy. There's that nagging conviction that comes when you read some of the Word of God, when you read passages like all have sinned. Wait a minute, all, that must include me. When you read in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. Or when you read in James, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Or when you read, whatever you've done to these, the least of my brothers you've done to me. If it's not conviction, that makes reading the Bible difficult. It might be something like this in 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
or in Philippians 1.29, but it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul said that suffering for the sake of Christ has been granted to us, like this is some kind of a gift, folks. Well, we could go on and on, and I could cite dozens of very hard scriptures. Even the disciples struggled with how hard the Word of God is sometimes. And they had the living Word, Jesus, right there with them physically. We read in John chapter 6, beginning with verse 60, after Jesus talked about being the living bread from heaven, and you remember the scene, he talked about whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood remains in him. And then we read this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then it's interesting because he adds after this, he adds something that's very pertinent to our look at the Word this morning. Jesus said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So the disciples, even right there with Jesus in the flesh, struggled with the Word of God, even the living Word in their midst, speaking that Word to them in person. So it's no surprise, really, if you think about it, it's no surprise then that we struggle, too, with some of the hard things in Scripture. But here's the point, folks. It must not keep us from that struggle. It must not keep us from the struggle. Then there's the challenge of the authority and the interpretation and inspiration of Scripture. Now, when I first began planning this message, I thought of giving a fair amount of detail on the careful way that the Word has been handed down from generation to generation. How the Scriptures we have today are undoubtedly the best documented ancient literature there is. Better researched, better documented than things like the Iliad and the Odyssey or any of dozens of other ancient writings that scholars pretty much take for granted as genuine. We needn't trust in the Scriptures with blind faith that they're God's Word. They're scientific, even scholarly proof galore, and I could spend the next hour and not even scratch the surface. But then Jim Grinnell helped us all last week, didn't he? With his great apologetic for the authority, for the trustworthiness of Scripture in last week's Easter message, providing a wonderful thread related to this morning's message. Also, I found this quote, which relates, and I'll leave it at this for the purposes of this message. Scripture does not always need to be defended, but it needs to simply be declared. It doesn't always need to be defended. Sometimes it simply needs to be declared. Charles Spurgeon's classic maxim puts it very forcefully. He said, the Bible is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion? Just turn it loose and it will defend itself. And so will Scripture so will Scripture. It is the preaching and exposition of the Bible that establishes its authority. We do not always need to defend it, just declare it and proclaim it. Now, let me also add that this is not to denigrate in any way at all the discipline of apologetics and a scholarly intellectual defense of Scripture. It's simply to say that apologetics alone will never suffice. Apologetics alone cannot soften hard hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through, what does he use? The Word of God. And the Word, as we've already noted, has 
power. The word has power. So yes, let's understand those things that Jim taught us last week. These are things I study about and I read often. And they are important for us to know. They are important for us to communicate about Scripture. But the word itself, it doesn't say apologetics is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It says the word is living and active. The word is living and active. So, by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, the Word is able to penetrate hearts in a way that apologetics alone cannot do. I believe the psalmist here also recognized the struggle that even we believers have with God's Word. Twice here in these first 16 verses, he talks with seeking God with all his heart. That's the phrase, all his heart. He talks in verse 15 of meditating on God's precepts and considering his ways. And that's where we need to be. And there's the crux of the problem, folks. Regardless of the reason, whether it's because it's hard to understand, maybe it's hard to accept, or I think many of us can be in just the place where it's just simply hard to discipline ourselves to read it. The Word is so important. The Word is so vital to our spiritual life and well-being that we cannot forget, or as verse 16 says, neglect your word. The word is the very life of God to us. Jesus said in quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 that man does not live on bread alone, but on what? On God's word. God's word. Then Jesus also said that he himself is the bread of life. And here's another wrinkle that gets you thinking. Jesus is also the living word. So Jesus said we don't live on bread alone, but he is the bread of life. Jesus said we live on God's word, and he is the living word. So, just like a really good TV show that you like to follow, that's where I'm going to leave you. That's where we end today. This is where we finish today. So you'll come back for the next one. Tune in next time, two weeks from now, in part two of Sweeter Than Honey and Better Than Money. We'll continue to look at God's word. We'll continue to look at its sufficiency in our spiritual life. It's clarity as we read it, as we meditate on God's Word and on its authority for our faith and practice and its necessity in our lives. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Your Word. Father, our heart is to be like this psalmist who declared his love for Your Word, who declared the sufficiency of Your Word, who declared that Your Word is indeed enough for him. Father, we pray that we would develop a love for your word. We would have a great understanding of the power that your word has in our lives and the power that the word wields when we speak it, Lord God. We thank you for these great truths. Help us to mind these things, even as maybe many of us read through the whole of Psalm 119 over these next couple weeks in preparation for part two of this message, Lord. We pray that your spirit would instill in us a love for your word, that we would indeed never forget or neglect your word in our lives, knowing that it is living and active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it penetrates into our spirits, into our hearts, into our minds in such a way that it can change us and transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. We're grateful for these truths, Lord, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.